0: So about two years ago... Uh-oh, that's different. Okay, you going, right, start over. Yeah, and when... Um, I'm sorry, start over, start over, start over. <laughs> Take two. You guys going doing good tonight? Okay, yeah.
1: So if you're new, this is a little bit different of a format we did this morning in Orange County. Uh, about two years ago when I was um, writing The Last Arrow and um, discovered I had cancer, One of the things I did is I um, built the opening and closing of the book around the theme of, of, um, of being battle ready. And out of that, we ended up starting a podcast where we began having a conversation together about life and all the battles that we all face that oftentimes we don't talk about publicly. And It's been really one of the most enjoyable things that we've done. So we decided today to take Battle Ready to Orange County and then bring Battle Ready to Venice Beach tonight. And we're going to have a conversation tonight that I'm sort of just sort of um, entitling uh, fathers and sons, but it includes mothers and daughters, includes every single human being. Um, Because one of the interesting images in the scriptures are that we're to take the life that we've been given and pour it to other people. And it's kind of interesting because a lot of times in the scriptures, it doesn't always work out that well with fathers and sons like Eli was a priest and his sons went rogue and, uh, and God replaced his sons with Samuel. And then you have King Saul and he goes rogue and his son Jonathan basically shifts his allegiance to David who was his friend. And you find um, this theme throughout the scriptures, there's this place where Paul, who um, historians would call the founder of Christianity, and he talks to this young man named Timothy And Paul didn't have any sons. He didn't have any daughters. He didn't have any children. But he calls Timothy a son. And he pours his life into him. And one of the things that that we thought would be really important to talk about is even the backdrop of our relationship as fathers and sons is the challenge of passing on values and passing on faith. Uh, Because one of the most challenging things in the world, it seems, is to pass on faith from generation to generation to generation. And so I wanted to read a passage of scripture, and then we'll kind of dive into some conversations. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And I'm reading out of this uh, translation called The Good News, because I, I, I like how, um, how uh, accessible it is. Paul writes, As for you, my son, be strong to the grace that is ours in union with Christ Jesus. Take the teachings that you've heard me proclaim in the presence of any witnesses, and entrust them to reliable people. Who will be able to teach others also. And I think this is one of those beautiful moments where Paul unwraps for all of us how he understands the message and life and person of Jesus is going to impact all of humanity. There's this core word here, he says, and entrust them to reliable people. And as I was reading this passage, I was... um, just thinking about the dilemma of being a parent, first of all. I know most of you guys... Anybody here a parent? I'm just kind of curious. All right. All six son. of us. Okay. Anybody here have parents? Okay. All right. True I just want to make question. sure everybody was involved in some way. And, but my wife and I, Kim and I, are what would be called first-generation Christians. Uh, we did not come from a Christian family. We did not have any kind of... Um, faith background. And and not only that, you can you can not have a faith background and still have a somewhat healthy family. And but we didn't have that either. And so my wife Kim was an orphan abandoned when she was eight years old in a government project, left starving until social services found her. And then she was put into a foster home where she stayed the next 10 years of her life. So from the age of eight to eighteen, she lived in a foster home. And she had nine brothers and sisters who were scattered across the the country, and some of them were adopted, some of them became um, wards of the state, some of them became homeless, some of them became drug dealers and and drug addicts and uh, indigent and uh, and a part of the uh, statistic of homelessness in America. And that's her family background. Her uh, biological parents were alcoholics, Um, her father was driving drunk when he crossed an intersection, and her mother was killed in a car accident and while her father was driving, and a few years later, he died. And my background, being from El Salvador, I never knew my father. My mom came to the States, left me with my grandparents. My grandparents raised me for the first few years, and my mom came back to get us. Then she married a guy who had an alias because he worked in creative underground economies, and, and uh, so <laughs> I come to the States, and I become McManus when he's not even McManus, so I spend the first 30 years of my life with an alias. And then we decide to get married. We've never seen a marriage work. We've never even seen a shadow of what healthy parenting would look like. And then we have a kid, <laughs> which I would call a social experiment, right? You know? <laughs> and, uh, and 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 Aaron, some and some would uh, call it. that. Some, yeah. And yeah, as experiments go, you have ups and downs, and uh, and. <laughs> And so he was our, almost our first iteration of an attempt to raise a human. And, but he did have an older sister because one day Kim said to me, uh, there's a young girl named Patty and she, was, um, she would be called undocumented back then. She would have been called illegal. And she was uh, here in the States. She did not speak English. And Kim said, Patty doesn't have a place to live. Bring her home today. So on Sunday morning, I brought Patty home and she stayed 12 years. And uh, so it was a long sleepover, and uh, and we put her in kindergarten so she could learn English, and she went kindergarten through 12th grade in a year, or no, to ninth grade in a year, then tenth, in eleventh, and the second year, and the 12th, and the third year, and so Aaron was raised
0: while we were raising Patty and helping her get documented, and she I hope a, someone's writing this down for Wikipedia, because yeah, this yeah, would yeah. be this would be great. I'm sorry, keep going.
1: But the funny part of it is that Patty Patty did not speak English. No. But she did not want to speak Spanish to Aaron because she wanted to learn English. So Aaron grew up with an older sister who was teaching him English who could not speak English. So Aaron became, he wasn't bilingual, he was (laughs) non-lingual. He couldn't speak Spanish and he could not speak English. At all.
0: At all. But I thought I could speak both.
1: Yes, he did. And uh, And I spoke none. (laughs) And then all of his friends, because we were living in a more urbanized area, all of his friends spoke Spanish. They didn't speak English. And, 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 and I remember one time driving, when we were driving across the country, he asked me, Dad, have I ever seen a white person? He had no idea what a white person was, and then I pointed to his mom. <laughs> he was shocked that there had always been one in the house. <laughs> so passing on deeply held values wasn't even a conversation. We we're just trying to figure out how to do life and be parents and teach the kid English, <laughs> and, uh, and, and and then we're trying to bring this new experience that we have of faith and figure out how to pass it on to our kids. And we'd seen so many people who grew up in church who hated God and hated the church, and we're like, we don't want to have that. And um, but you're passing on something beautiful through painfully imperfect vessels. So the vehicle of the gospel, the vehicle of Jesus, distorts the essence and reality of Jesus. And so a part of what I wanted just to like, um, lay out as we begin the conversation tonight is when it says entrust them, when I read this I realized God entrusted us with Aaron. And then entrusted us to put his values and his essence in him. And now we're entrusting him to pass it on and put it in other people. And I started thinking about a lot of parents. They don't understand that their kids are a trust, not a possession. See, I I actually think a huge part of the faith dilemma uh, with parents who are Christians is that they act as if their kids are their possession. And I also realize this is also true not just of Christians, but of Buddhists and Muslims and Hindus and just parenting in general. And I think there's a couple of reasons. One is that we think they're our possession, and so we're supposed to um, tell them who to become. And, and sometimes it's because we fear the world around us. But I think other times it's because they're our only hope to live our unlived dreams, and so we try to impose our dreams for our life on our kids, so that we can live vicariously through them. And one of the things I just want to lay as a as a framework is that um, one you you never own a human being, but that that should have always been illegal. It was never a good idea. It was always wrong. But sometimes parents actually operate from an ownership mentality, and so they use authority and power to try to shape their children's lives. And if you see your children as a trust, then you realize that you have an opportunity to build a relationship with a human being as they develop, wow. where you can shape their inner world in a beautiful way. And, and, and the journey was not easy for us. And a part of the reason I think this is such an important conversation is because you've gone through a long journey and where Trust was really broken, and you had to go through a journey of finding your way back to trust. So maybe share a little, just a little bit
0: about that. Well, I think for, for, you, really told all of it. Like, yeah. you told it, you like you didn't leave.
1: There's so much to so tell. So much to
0: tell. Um, well, but I think first, like, how does a room? You know, who? There's lots of families in the room. New families that are kind of building into this new time slot and this new campus here in Venice on Aberkini. But also, um, a lot of young people who the thought of family is a few steps away. You know, they have to actually like get a job to get a girlfriend, then to, to, to like then get a girlfriend. I mean, have you to don't have yes. to have a job to have a girlfriend. No, but really, you, like, you, yeah, yeah. yeah, you should. Yeah, you should. Sure. <laughs> for sure.
1: A lot of guys are trying to get a girlfriend so they don't have to have a
0: job. So I'm like, I, <laughs> I love, I love when they're like, I'm gonna date her. I was like, where are you gonna take her? <laughs> Hat in what car? But the the reason this matters to everyone here, even
1: though you're single... I got a bus pass. ...is is that um, the the core things that you need to receive from here at Mosaic are not based on information. It's based on essence. And in the same journey that I have as a dad of pouring these things into Aaron, we have, as humans, pouring them into each other. Because the, the, the reality of who Jesus is and the power of his message only translates, only transfers when we've taken on that trust and then we're pouring it into other people's lives.
0: And, and that is this example, right, yeah. from Paul to Timothy. And it, and, it's, and, it's, and it goes both ways. It's Paul adopting Timothy as a son and Timothy receiving the, the, the responsibility of being a son. And I think the thing that I'm learning more and more as I get older, I'm 31 now, is the responsibility of a son, mm-hmm. right? When you're, when you are the young child who doesn't speak Spanish or English, <laughs> your, you know, your responsibility is just to survive. <laughs> you know, and then you realize as you get older that that there's something that you can contribute to the relationship, mm-hmm. and that oftentimes homes that are chaotic is, is I think the the kids not realizing that, th- that it is on them to bring peace and to bring a service and to bring um, love and, and and also a posture of like, hey, you can teach me. But I love that. So uh, even people in this room who are like, hey, family is way far away from me. This You can learn how to be a better father, but you also learn how to be a better son. Does that make sense? So you can also learn how to love on people as if they're your own. I think there's a spiritual uh, relationship that I love that Paul adopts Timothy and I think and we build a church with the young leaders and, and, and young people here that you're adopting that next young person and going, hey, I'm just going to bring you in as a son. I'm going to feed you when you're hungry. I'm going to love on you. I'm going to give you wisdom. You know what I mean? Because yeah. you might be a few steps before ahead of the person, that, the next person up here. Adon and all of his South Africans is like the greatest example. Like, he's a leader here who just has adopted all these young guys and just loves on those young guys, you know, and we have that again and again and again. But I was a little kid. And I was three or four years old, and I swore I like gave my life to Jesus. You did. And I, I did. didn't believe you. No, 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 you didn't. And I this is when I spoke English. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So and I remember and I remember because we, we we you would pray with me every night this prayer, and you reminded me of the second half, but I only remember the first half. You would pray over me that I would, you know that we would be that we would live by faith, be known by love, and be a voice of hope. And then you finished it. You, can you want to say that? Uh, yeah. So
1: every night I prayed over you. I pray that Aaron would live, would live by faith, be known by love, and be a voice of hope. And I pray that Aaron would have great dreams and the courage to
0: pursue them. Yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And um. <laughs> and I remember being a kid and thinking. One of the things like growing up, like that one, it's it's to dream great dreams and to pursue them and to you know, to have the courage to pursue them, but then also to like to live by faith, to be know my love to be a voice of hope. I remember thinking as a young guy going, I love Jesus because my dad loves Jesus. Because I have this relationship with my dad and he's the extension of Jesus in my life. And I think when we, whoever we are in any situation, we have this ability to be the extension of Christ in other people's lives. Yeah. That they may you are the you are the step away before you ever get to that person ever gets to know Jesus. They will they will determine what Jesus is like based on how you treat them. They will determine what Jesus is like based on how you love on them and how you build into them and how you encourage them. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, we're, we're hearing that. And I think we become entrusted to the next generation, whoever it may be, if it's one person or if it's a series of people, to love on them the way Jesus would love on them. And I remember being four years old going like, Dad, or three years old, Dad, I'm a Christian. And he'd be like, Aaron, you don't even go to the bathroom on your own. You can't be <laughs> anything. You're barely human. Okay, and- I was very skeptical, okay? And uh, and again, this was my first... Uh, I got one awe. How sweet is yeah, that? Yeah, my first no effort raising cared. a
1: kid. So he came to me at three and said he was a Christian, and I told him, sure. And, uh, no, and- he said
0: no. He's okay. like, there's no yeah. way. I might
1: have said, I might have said... You don't get it yet. You don't understand. And then I think at four, he came and said, can I be baptized? And I said, no, you have to be a Christian first.
0: I was like a mature Christian. I've been a Christian for a whole a year. year. And,
1: uh, <laughs> you know? and I looked at him and I said, you can't be baptized until you're a Christian. And he looked at me and said, I am a Christian, but no one will believe me. <laughs> and, uh, and no one meaning me. And, uh, and then by the way, uh, when he was five, I thought, oh, he should probably pray. Like I would pray for him, but I never had him pray. And uh, and I and I said, okay, you say you're, I mean you're Christian, and uh, and you want to be baptized, and so you should pray. And I remember the first prayer he ever prayed. He said, Jesus, make me a leader of men. And I that blew me away. I didn't know where he got that. That was kind of extraordinary. Got him. And uh, and. Uh, and then one day we're sitting outside of the building where we were meeting in and I had an office there and he said, dad, that's your office, right? And I said, yeah. He goes, that's your office because you're the pastor, right? I said, uh-huh. He goes, but one day that won't be your office. That'll be my office. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, you're five. And uh, he just, just wait a minute. And, I was um, driven. He was driven. He was very, But but I think the reason is because we were pouring something inside of him. It was a belief that, even at five, you could make a difference in the world. And and so maybe he, did, he couldn't explain the Trinity or he couldn't explain the second coming, which I can't explain either of those still. And, uh, um, but what he, what he knew was that he was creative with meaning and his life mattered, and he's supposed to do something to make the world a better place. And I think sometimes we... we We lose our faith because we're trying to entrust to each other the wrong things. We think it's all
0: about information uh, rather than essence. And we live in a culture that it is we are constantly downloading information, whether it's what we choose or what we don't choose, what we drive by, what is like blasted at us, what is tweeted, Instagrammed, YouTubed, news, however you take it, there is constant information being downloaded in major cities. So when you across look back, the world. what were the some of the key things that you feel like we put into you? You were talking about earlier, yeah, and um, that you wanted to talk about that were unexpected. I th- I, mean, I think one one of the one of the few things was that like, yeah, there wasn't a lot. Um, I'm just kidding. That was mean. I'm just trying to get back to him. Um, no, no, I think I think three to four was just this 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 instillment of you how much you love Jesus and how much you love people and how much you love the church. And then I grew up going, having kind of this not naive but but a, but an unrealistic view of humanity. Going every the way my parents are is how every person will be. And then you actually meet humans, mm-hmm. and, and and everyone's going through something, and people relate and project the things that they have experienced on me. And especially when you grow up as a pastor's kid, there's a lot of projection. Mm-hmm. I am like an archelite of other people's feelings and what people think of how I should live my life. Mm-hmm. But especially as a young kid, you don't quite perceive it all and can't understand it all. But I do know that from, you know, four to 18, you grow up with the uh, worldview that your parents have, right? Whether you like it or not, you live in their household and they're gonna believe what they believe and they're gonna kind of, for- not force that, but I mean, a lot of parents do force it. Yeah. You guys' mom kind of forced it. Um, she's like, you, you will listen to worship music every time you enter the car forever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you had me and we were listening to other music. To other music. And then mom would get in the car and he would ditch that song so quick. <laughs>
1: And my wife would go, do you really like this music? And I said, no, I torment myself by listening to it when you're not in the car, honey. And, But but I think one of the things that... But you helped me
0: build... Well, I'm getting there, I'm yeah. getting there. Yeah. You, but you, you, when I turned like 17, eight, like we got somebody. Um, we turn, we ter, when I turned 17, 18, you kind of sat me down and said, okay, look, like, you're going to university, you're going to college, you have to... Figure out what you believe, and that was a conversation we had had for eight years. I was twelve years old, going, "Is there a God? Mm -hmm. Is there a universe? You know, like I was asking annoyingly unknown questions that no one had really the, the the direct answers to. You and you said you need to go figure it out for yourself, and you sent me to like, you sent me to like Buddhist camp, you sent me to like Scientology day camp you sent me to you sent me like you would go we were in thailand you're like you're going to go to the hindu temple for a day and just go figure out what you believe you don't believe in god you don't know what you believe but you know what we believe and you're going to go and cross-reference that with everybody else and i I would come home and i mean scientology was the quickest one but but (laughs) but i came back from buddhist camp and i was like they're really kind people
1: but the shinto temple in tokyo was beautiful
0: it was beautiful it was beautiful, it was stunning, and I think I was, you really exposed me to a lot early on.
1: Yeah, I took you to the Hare Krishna temple.
0: Yeah, and, and yeah, no hair, there was no hair anywhere. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no. And, but what you taught me was how to construct a worldview, which is what I think, and you taught me how to think and then how to criticize that thinking. And, and I think that uh, something that our generation, my generation, has lost is this ability to construct a worldview we download information and our minds and our hearts and our souls are like this art gallery and we let everybody hang something up inside of it. And we're emotionally moved by what other people believe because we're so empathetic. That we want to feel what other people are feeling at the detriment of our own worldview. Mm. Does that, you you're with me? Yep. Yeah. And so, and the one thing that me and Carlos have been talking about, and you and I have been talking about, is I do feel like the, my generation and the generations after me have lost this ability to develop a worldview. You either believe, you subscribe to what your parents believed, or you go and find something on your own, but you're not really challenging that thought process and what other people are actually inputting into your life. So, could you talk to us about how to create a space inside of our hearts, minds, and souls? actually develop a worldview. Sure, I think they're, that, by the way, that's pretty brilliant. And
1: because I think a lot of times as parents, we try to teach our children behavior. Right. And I never made the focus of your life teaching you behavior. I tried to make it focusing not on what you do, but on how you think. And not focusing on you believing what I believe, but, but actually knowing how to think mm-hmm. and how to come to convictions on your own. Uh, I think uh, it was maybe when Aaron was around 11 or 12 years old, we were driving in the car, and he said, Dad, I don't, I don't think I would be a Christian if I didn't grow up in a Christian home. And I said, why are you saying that, buddy? And, and he said, because um, I have so many doubts and questions. And, uh, and I said, oh, doubts and questions, I have those. And uh, I wanted to know that inside of your faith journey, there's plenty of room for doubts and questions. Because I, I think that, unfortunately, a lot of times, we suffocate each other because we act as if, if you really are sincere, you don't have any doubt and you don't have any questions. So I said, "Oh, doubts and questions—I have those too." And then I said, "So what do you think you're going to do?" And it was real quiet, and I was a little nervous, you know. And um, and he said, "Well, I've already met God, so what can I do?" And I could I could, I could feel how perplexed he was. I, I I've had this transcendent encounter with God as a child that I can't explain and he hasn't answered all my questions and I'm torn and I knew life would always come really hard for him and uh, because he's always tormented by this internal world of asking and I I, I saw a couple of things happen one is um, you know some kids are really idealistic you ever notice that and some humans are just more driven toward ideals and Aaron was like that. He had really high ideals. He when he was a kid, he thought everyone would be loving and everyone was compassionate and everyone would be forgiving and, and everyone would be accepting. And then when he hit the real world, it shattered his inner world. And because he found out not only is not everyone like that, not even Christians are like that. And so it, it set his life in disarray. And it created a lot of pain, a lot of hurt, a lot of bitterness. And, um, and anybody who knows Aaron's journey knows it's been quite a journey um, and in that journey he ran hard and fast away from God and, and from the life that, um, that I think even he wanted He just and one of the things I did as a parent is I made a decision I was going to create space for him to struggle because one of the hardest things in the world to be a, a pastor's son is that people expect perfection from you They expect you to get it right, right away, every single time, and every time you mess up, there's a whole church ready to remind you where you messed up, and and then we have the internet now, which makes it even more enjoyable, and so Isis decided that he had to have room to become a human being, to get something's right, to get something's wrong, to uh, to be self-destructive if that's a part of the journey, and I would just hold on tight and love him in the middle of all that pain. And I, and I think that a part of the, um, the reason we're all the way back this way is because um, you always had room to breathe to at least try to figure out who you were and who you wanted to become and what you believed. And you said to me earlier, the two things that you gave me was this, uh, the importance of worldview and mindsets. And, and I think that's a more important framework. Because a lot of times, our belief systems are really completely put together by what we feel. Mm. And, and what you feel changes, doesn't it? And sometimes what you feel changes in the same day, in the same hour, sometimes for some of you in the same minute, and, uh, and, and that's why dating is so challenging because you're not sure which one of you are you gonna get. And Half if, the room
0: got so tight.
1: And, uh, and if your worldview is shaped by how you feel about things, it's 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 gonna be so unstable, you're not gonna know
0: who you are. so give us a practical. How do you which I think one of this is incredible. I love the direction this is going. This is so different than what we talked about this morning. How do you construct a healthy worldview? How do you filter everything that's going on around you and actually build an argument, not an argument, but like a a belief inside Mm -hmm. of yourself that's one, biblical, but two, also not just ideological or or completely um, engulfed in feelings. Mm -hmm. How do you create something that's clear? Well, I don't know if I could tell everyone how to do that, because I
1: don't know what your deeply held beliefs and convictions are. And I made a decision that I would build my life around the person of Jesus, and that I would construct my view of reality through how Jesus sees reality. And that's the journey I went through to build my worldview. And, um, and, then, I, and then I built my life on the principles of the scriptures. And, and so when someone tries to argue with me about the Bible, I'm like, hey, if you don't believe in God, I, there's no reason to argue with you about the Bible. I, I'm not, why would I argue with you about a book? I just want to talk to you about a person whose name is Jesus, and Because I, I think that the worldview that you're supposed to have is supposed to be shaped out of relationship to Jesus, and your view of people is supposed to be shaped out of your relationship to who Jesus is, and, uh, and, and that's why if you're a follower of Jesus, you are supposed to be an idealist. You're supposed to believe that we can create a world where there's no poverty. You're supposed to believe in a world where everyone has justice. You're supposed to believe in a world where everyone is loved and accepted. You're supposed to believe in a world where uh, we are driven by compassion and passion. And and, and even though we know that we're always going to fall short of that, if you are a follower of Jesus, you can never let go of that. And so my worldview is very much shaped
0: by that. So break down a thought. Sure. Because I know you won't tell them how to do it, but tell me how to do it. (laughs) And then I'll tell them how to do it. Well, I remember when you were young, I would tell you, I said, um, um,
1: no matter what your worldview is, you have to always posture yourself for disappointment. Okay. Because um, not everyone will live up to your expectations of them. So I would rather... um, like my world view is I'm, uh, um, people inherently want to be trustworthy. So when they're untrustworthy, I, I work from the framework of um, they, even they want to be better than this. I work from a framework that every human being intrinsically wants to be heroic. Wow. Wow. And so when they are fearful or live like cowards or make uh, a choice that violates their convictions, I, I try to create a better world for them so they can actually have their courage. And so there's a huge part of the way I see the world is I believe that inside of every human being there's a longing to be the best version of themselves. Yeah. And, and frankly, in most churches, when I went, would go to church, what I would hear was a different worldview. The worldview is everybody is really just wants to be a sinner. Like everybody just wants to destroy each other and take advantage of everybody. And, and we got to convince you to not be that. And uh, so give your life to Jesus so he can change uh, you into something you don't want to be. And I'm like, it's impossible to change someone to become something they don't want to become. Right. So if Jesus came to change us to be loving, to be compassionate, to be forgiving, to be generous, that must be the inherent essence of human beings. Because, and, uh, and I know inside of me, I long for
0: that. And so for like, how do you discern? So I want to go back to this. So how do you discern what is a proper worldview on a topic, right? Like, do you go to the scriptures first? Do you go to like your your psychology background? What are like practical things that you filter out the noise that is constantly being inputted?
1: Yeah. When I became a follower of Christ at twenty, who
0: do do you listen to? No, no, no. no, no. Go. No, no no stories. Tell me how to do it. See, this is the way I raised him. It's like him and, and Mariah would go, Dad, no Yoda
1: today. Please, like, you know, <laughs> and, uh, just tell us what to do. I'm shutting oh. the door to stories. And by the way, that's what this podcast, this Battle Ready is called, Just Tell Me What to Do. Because Battle Ready,
0: an assortment of stories by Rowan Raphael McManus. Because
1: that's what they always wanted me to do. They want me to tell them what to do, and I wanted to focus on who they should become. And that
0: is that is literally the title <laughs> of this. This is. I would write... Just, my brain is just tell me what to do and I'll do it or I won't do it and I'm a failure and I'll get better.
1: And here's the problem. If you keep telling someone what to do and you don't teach them how to think, they cannot exist without you. I don't want them to exist without me. I want it all to crumble when I'm gone. (laughs) And and, and if I solve every problem for you, you're never going to learn how to be a problem solver. And and so,
0: yes, I built my right, Hold on. Did the whole front row receive that? <laughs> you micromanaging <laughs> leaders that are,
1: yeah. And where did they learn to micromanage? From.
0: <laughs> so good. So good. I created you, and thus I will end all of you. Oh, no. Um, no, because we all
1: micromanage at first until you're until your vision and your life gets so big you can't manage the micro anymore. And, and so what happens with every good leader I know, from Aaron, to Tess, to Carlos, to every good leader I know, this is what happens to them. They, John Gordon is here. John, isn't it true? We all wanna micromanage until the managing is too big for us. And then we have to decide, are we gonna keep our world really small Or are we going to finally trust people and let our world get bigger? Right? And uh,
0: Okay. I'm going to get you to tell me what to do.
1: (laughs) I build my life completely on the scriptures.
0: Yes. I do, without question. You hear something that challenges uh, your human inclination, something that you might feel empathetic for, or, by, or or be moved to to act towards, and you go to the scriptures.
1: I know and the scriptures what?
0: not only teach me truth. Yes.
1: They teach me trust.
0: Mm. Hold on, time out.
1: And uh, you That's see, so because good.
0: you need to write that down. Because
1: here. a lot of times, what we want is truth without the love. Mm. And truth without love is destructive. Mm. And, uh, and, and love without truth is corrosive.
0: Can you explain that? Why? Yeah. Well, I think we would be in a room full of feelers. Okay, so let's look at both sides. See, truth
1: without love is what we've experienced for a thousand years. The church just condemning everyone and judging everyone. Even when the church was right, they were still wrong. Mm. And, I, and I don't really want to hear truth from anyone if there's no love coming. And Twitter is truth without love. It is. It, it, it's, or it's, sometimes it's just falsehood without love. Yeah. And, but love without truth is also destructive because like when Aaron was living a more destructive life and if we did not speak truth into his life, we could say it's because we love him. But it, it's actually because we don't believe that he wants to become the best version of himself. See, when you just, quote, love a person without speaking truth in their life, you do not believe they want to become the best version of themselves. Wow. And that's why when I hear people frustrated with other people, and they go, well, they're not getting their job done, they're not doing this, or they're living this kind of life, or they're making these kind of choices, you go, well, have you had a conversation with them? They go, well, no. I say, it's because you're assuming that they want a lesser life for themselves.
0: That is so good because I think when we meet with people and meet with leaders and and just meet with with guys and men and women who could just come to church or don't or just friends, Mm -hmm. we so often project our worldview and what we expect from them without asking them, what do you want from this? Or what do you expect from me? Or Mm -hmm. what do you want in life? And let me meet you where you're at and we'll go on a journey together. Since we're talking about this metaphor of fathers and sons, I
1: want to read this passage in Colossians 3.21. It's why it takes me a long time to answer that question. In Colossians 3.21, it says, Parents, don't come down too hard on your children, or you will crush their spirit. And, and a lot of times, people want me to be much, much more dogmatic. It's like, tell people what's right and what's wrong. But I realize that, that when you speak about behavior, people hear it about Identity. And you may crush their spirit because they think you've rejected them as a human being. Wow. Even if you, uh, but you may just be disagreeing with their action or their choices. And ever since, um, in fact, when Aaron and Mariah were really young, um, I would work really hard to change a cultural um, language. I would hear someone say, he's a liar. And I would say, you're not a liar, but you did lie. You're a thief. We go. You're not a thief, but you did steal. Wow. And um, we have a cultural problem where we always move toward defining people by their worst behavior. Wow. And but when a person is honorable, you know we should. That's when we we should go. You're a hero. You know you were so courageous. You were so generous. And you were so compassionate. You really served. Um, I think we should always define each other by their best behavior. It, so you don't ignore the worst behavior. You say, hey, bro, you just stole my car. That actually happened to us. And by the way, two youth in our church stole my car. And, um, and, and so I'm not going to deny the fact that they stole the car. But I don't want to define them by that moment and say that you are permanently defined as thieves. And so what happens a lot of times is that when we focus on behavior or we moralize, a person connects that to their identity. And so there are a lot of things um, that we wouldn't have agreed on at different times in your life, but I never, ever defined you by those moments because I didn't if want to anything, leave you traps there.
0: I do more than you ever did.
1: You always defined yourself by your worst moments.
0: Yeah. And I think that's, and that's, Battle right has been really freeing of that because I think, and even speaking publicly, because when you put yourself on display, you realize how covered you are in God's grace. Mm-hmm. And, and that sounds very, maybe, churchy or something we don't often say, but I'm meaning this. The more open I've been about my past and opening my life up, going like, hey, let's look inside of my stupidity and failures and how I got, you know, getting back towards a healthy character and a better life, I think that God's actually freed me from the things that have shamed me. And God's actually freed me from things that made me feel guilty. There are moments where I still feel guilty and shameful. And I think so many people get caught up and run away from God's calling to do church or build church or be a part of this because they're like, man, I still made these mistakes. and I don't want that calling and coming for me down the line. We see how humiliated we in our culture humiliate people. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? we drag people out, we expose them, and we leave them there. And then a few years later, no one cares anymore, but they're still left in like ruins. Mm-hmm. And and it's a societal thing, it's a cultural thing that we do. And I think people, especially young people, are so afraid to, to, for that to happen to them. Mm-hmm. And, I'm, and I, and, and we talk about it, I'm like, there may be a day. It's like, hey, I may be humiliated again, but it talks so much about it in here. About people who made so many mistakes, and yet God used their humiliation for His His glory. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I think one thing. Yeah, I, I. Actually, we should applaud that. That's exactly right. And
1: what re- really struck me is, you know, with Jesus and John eight talking to the adulterous woman when they dragged her out from the act yeah. of adultery, and they were wanting to stone her, and and Jesus just writes in the sand and then says. Um, whoever's without sin cast the first stone and one by one they walk away dropping the stones and then Jesus says who condemns you and she says no one and then he says neither do I condemn you and then he says now go and sin no more and I think a part of our dilemma is um, we want a God who says everything we do is okay so we actually don't want the part of the story where he says go and sin no more See, we have a culture right now that would only focus on that statement from Jesus. You see? He called, he called my actions sin. And the whole story is actually about grace. And, and I think a part of the dilemma of the time that we live in is that we want to identify ourselves by our actions rather than our essence. And, um,
0: and Jesus People feel really uncomfortable with that. Yeah. They don't like that. Because everyone, like we live a NASCAR life. Like everybody wants to know what you what you're sponsored by, and who and <laughs> what you sponsor. Like it is, and if you don't, and they don't even care. They just want you to to rep to to, to you know to go like I'm affiliated with this. I associate myself with this. And and it, we find it like, even being the church, and like we're a pretty cool church, and we like work with lots of people. Lots of people won't affiliate with us because we won't draw a line. And so many different in so many different aspects of life. And that is something I think our essence is different than than our than what we're represented by. And I think we make it so much about Jesus it actually makes people feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Keep going. Sorry, I just. Yeah. To say no, that. I think it's exactly right. I think so. I work from a basic assumption: um, when you don't
1: live up to who you're supposed to be as a human being, your soul's already telling you that. And so you don't need me to be the condemnation machine in your life. And what you need to know is if there's still a path to grace. In your life, and so and so, I want to do a couple of things. I want to be the guy that makes sure no one throws stones at you, yeah. And in the in between, yeah. And uh, and and to make sure that everyone who thinks their job is to condemn isn't condemning you, mm. so that you can experience the wonder and power of grace and forgiveness in your life. But I do think we need to probably say a little bit more. Forgiveness is a really powerful thing. And I have needed forgiveness in my life over and over and over again. And to say you need forgiveness does not mean that you're less. It just means that you're honest, that you're real. And and that forgiveness is a part of the healing solve of how God makes you whole again in your life. And so you have to take ownership for your life. And I, I do think it's interesting when you said earlier about worldview and mindsets, your, your worldview is the way you see the world around you, and it, it doesn't, most of the time people want to attach that to a moral structure, and I, I, and I really want to, I, I like to wrap it around a human structure, what, what does it look like to be most human, and in fact, I was telling Aaron, because uh, he's got me on to this guy, Jordan Peterson, and, uh, and so I, I went from Jordan to Sam Harris, I just popped over to Sam for a little while, and, and I needed a little atheism, And uh, although he says you shouldn't call, that you shouldn't need the word atheism because it just should be normal, right? But then on one of his statements, he has like this on Instagram, he has a bear about to eat a human. He said, just because something is natural, it doesn't mean it's good. And because like if the bear eats you, that's natural, but it's not good. And I'm looking at it going, what's good for the bear? (laughs) And and I, right? We had a whole conversation about this before we walked up here. And I said, what's interesting is Sam Harris, who's a classic, Atheists, from like I guess our more normal vernacular, he still believes in God, he just calls it good. He just added a no. And because if you actually think there's a difference between natural and good, you actually are creating the space where God exists. Because if there is no God, there is no distinction between natural and good. And that's an absurd, absurd distinction. And in one of his um, posts, had said the brain, your brain doesn't have room for your soul. And I'm like, wow, his brain must be small. <laughs> because I don't know about you, but my brain has an ever expanding universe inside of it. Like it, 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 it's, it, it's extraordinary to me how my brain and my imagination seems to have no limit. So I know that my brain has room for my soul. My question is, does my thinking have room for my soul? Wow. And, and for me, um, a, a worldview is, how do you think humanity is, is created to operate? I think we're created to operate with the central principle of life being love. And that is my worldview, that human beings must have hope to move forward, The human beings are designed for faith, that's why I prayed over you every night, to live by faith, to be known by love, to be a voice of hope. That's the worldview I was trying to put inside of you. Everything else works out to the details of life. And, and then you're talking about mindset. And, and I just want to say this because I, uh, I, I found, I've been involved with three different neuroclinics, and, and one of them on a blackboard had brain descriptions, and it had Ferraris, and then it had trucks. And I said, why in this neuroclinic do you have trucks and Ferraris? And they said, you're not supposed to see this board. And I said, well, here I am, so explain it to me. And and they said, all brains are not the same. A lot of brains are like trucks. They can't go really fast, but they're indestructible. And he said, we don't really have to work with truck brains, because truck brains just don't get hurt. He goes, but Ferrari brains have high level of creativity, imagination, genius. But they're really fragile, and they break really easily. And what really struck me is that people who are natural idealists are usually people with Ferrari brains. They believe in the goodness of humanity. They believe that the world is supposed to be different. And and I, I know this having journeyed with you for 31 years, that you have this, you're born with this Ferrari brain of human ideals, and you believe the world was supposed to be good and loving and compassionate and kind and caring and then you got crashed into by a lot of trucks, and they were judgmental and condemning, and, and it left you shattered. That is it's so many people's story. No. And I see that in so many people. Yeah. And part of the reason I love doing this with you is because I've watched your whole life go through this journey. Yeah. And, and I, I watched you go through a period of time where You were like, I'm gonna destroy every truck in the world. I'm gonna blow up every car I can, pop all the tires, beat out a few windows, and grab a few passengers along the way. I
0: I wasn't lovely to be around. And uh, you were so angry at the world. I was, and I wanted to destroy things that were arrogant that saw themselves as good. And what is
1: beautiful is I've seen you go now full circle to where your ideals have come back and you've said, okay, I had to deal with the reality of the world is not perfect, the world is broken. The world is full of pain. And uh, so now I'm gonna fight to create this ideal world. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna create a world where everyone has a place to be loved, where everyone finds compassion, where everyone is generous, where everyone has uh, justice. And I love that about who you are as a person.
0: Thank you. Um, I wanna close this up, because this this has actually been one of my favorite conversations we've ever had. And I think it's really helpful. I think one is like a young generation Mm. And a young church with lots of families. We have we have it all here, and I think it's so important for us to learn how to think, and 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 because just because you believe, whether you believe in Jesus or not, but if you believe in Jesus, just because you believe in Jesus does not give you the right to never think again. You have to think, and you have to keep thinking, That's and right. you have to keep learning, memorizing, pouring into this, because if you, don't pour, if you do not receive from this book, this is the Bible, if anybody of you are wondering, this is the Bible, starting here, uh, you what you pour into others will not actually be healthy. Yeah. And it's not that you can't do good on your own, but it is that we as, as believers in Jesus, this is the foundation of our thought. Yeah. This is the programming, the code in our DNA. And so if you hear and you don't pick this thing up, but then you wonder why you just don't see the world in a healthy way. Because you're inputting the wrong things. And I want you to close it up because it's an honor to have you. And you're incredible. And I'm grateful that you Jedi'd tonight.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, we were driving across Texas to California years ago, me and my friend. And we started playing that game where you go A, B, C, you know, you see the letters on billboards. And he kept beating me, and I knew he was cheating. And he would go, Q, over there. And I, there's no Q there. And then we'd drive closer, and there was a Q there. And you're just guessing. And we did this for hours, and I was kind of irritated. And He goes, wait a minute, Irwin, tell me how soon you can see the letter D. And we got closer and closer and closer, like D. And he he said, you're blind, man, you're blind. (laughs) He goes, the reason you can't win this game is you can't see clearly. I never knew, because I never went and got an eye exam, because only rich people do that. And, uh, I mean, I didn't grow up with that, you know. I, 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 who does that? Who goes and gets the eyes checked, right? And, and so I was in California, and I went to an eye doctor, and they go, oh, yeah, yeah, you, you, you need glasses. And I always thought I saw the world clearly. And the first time I put on glasses, I realized leaves were individual entities. I thought trees were like, you know.
0: Impressionist I, paintings. Yes,
1: I realized why... I realized why I loved Monet so much. (laughs) Because it's how you saw the world. Because the whole world was Monet to me. I thought Monet's the only one who got it right, you know? And and I think the problem is that when you don't have a biblical worldview, when you do not allow the scriptures to shape the way you see reality, you think you're seeing clearly, but you're just seeing everything in a blur. Mm. And then you want God to help you see your future clearly but you can't even see your reality clearly and so i just would encourage you first of all just begin with who jesus is it's a great place to begin how does jesus relate to people how does he see the world uh, what 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 is he saying to you about the person you should become and you know you know my wife Kim, and she's always like you need to talk more i last she's speaking in today and i told her i said we we're all saying honey could you just not like talk about porn or cannabis They were just like those are your two big themes right and Malawi and uh, I don't know how they go together you know you know Kim's a southern girl and she's just gonna talk about um, a lot of times about behavior and because she's real practical if you're stealing you're a thief <laughs> and if you're lying you're a liar and uh, and you got to stop sleeping with that girl and uh, I mean she's just that straightforward but you know what I've learned is that when you isolate a person's actions, you actually give them a way around dealing with their essence. You're gonna make a lot of good choices in life, and you're gonna make some bad choices in life. But the most important choice you'll ever make is who you will be as a human being. And if you're not moving toward becoming the person that you were created to be, Your soul will always be in distress. It's what Sam Harris would say, the difference between the natural and the good. If you just live, quote, in the natural, but never move to the good, you will never sense that overwhelming joy of being fully alive. Because God created you for the good. And so I I just want to give you one perspective from Jesus he sees you he knows you he values you you're created for infinite unconditional relentless love and everything else will work its way out but if you don't begin there by receiving his love the rest of it won't make any sense anyway How does it make sense that God stepped into human history? That he died on a cross? That he rose from the dead? That should not fit into any one of our worldviews. And yet, this is how Jesus came to shatter our view of reality. He stepped into time and space for us. And if you'll open yourself to that, and allow his love to change you, your universe will change from the inside out. Will you just bow your heads with me just for a moment and just close your eyes? You may be here, and you've never crossed the line of faith and trusted Jesus with your life. Maybe you've thought about it or have run from it, but in this moment, you know that what you need is Jesus, You need his forgiveness. You need his love. You need his freedom. You need the hope that only Jesus brings. And I want to lead you in a really simple prayer where you can invite Jesus into your life. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I give you my life. That's it. That's where it starts. Just tell them, Jesus, I give you my life. Jesus, I give you my life. If you're here right now and you know that this is your moment, if you just whispered that prayer and said, Jesus, I give you my life, I I want you right now just to raise your hand so I can see you and pray for you right now. If you're here and this is your prayer, Jesus, I give you my life right now. I just want you to just let me know that tonight. Jesus, I give you my life. Beautiful, wonderful. Anyone else? Jesus, I give you my life. Father, I thank you for those who've opened up their lives to you. You've just whispered the simple prayer, Jesus, I give you my life. And, And God, it's terrifying to give you everything we have, all that we know for that which we do not know. God, that's so scary. But I thank you, Jesus, that you are the source of love. You are the source of hope and life. You are the source of joy. You are the path into our future. And so God, I just pray that you would just wrap each person with your love. Let them know they belong to you. And God, I'm so grateful that um, that you focus not just on changing our behavior, that your focus is on changing our essence, that you change us through relationship, and that it is the power of love that elevates the human spirit. And God I pray that even now what you've entrusted to us and placed in our hearts would be implanted in the hearts in this room as we entrust it to them. And I pray God that even as they leave this place that they would take the love and the life that's been placed in them and that they would entrust it and implant it in the hearts of others. God, may you make us a revolution of love. That, God, that we would transmit hope everywhere we go, that we would bring joy everywhere we go. God, that we would be contagions of life in a world that just exists. We thank you, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.